0: Hello and welcome to FinTech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show, I have actually a non-FinTech guest. I have Jennifer Coldry of the Upside Foundation. The Upside Foundation is an organization that helps entrepreneurs, specifically early stage ones, incorporate charitable giving into their entire value proposition, into their mission from an early stage by having people donate shares in the company before an exit event to a charitable endowment. And with that, here's my interview with Jennifer. Hello, Jennifer. Hi,
1: Jason. How are you?
0: Good, I Thanks for taking the time today.
1: Oh, my pleasure. It's uh, This is one of my favorite topics. So very happy to chat with you about this today.
0: You know, it should be that what everybody does should be their favorite topic. I mean, hopefully we should all be so passionate about what it is we do. So Jennifer Coldry of the Upside Foundation, tell us about the Upside Foundation of Canada or Upside Foundation for short.
1: Yeah. So the Upside Foundation is a charity That works with early stage high growth companies who want to give back and embed social responsibility into the DNA of their company by enabling them to donate equity in their company for charity. So the way that it works is that when you're at an early stage, which could be you're just getting your company started, there's just one or two of you, or it could be that you've raised a hundred million dollars, but you plan to be a billion dollar company one day. They will give us either stock options or personal proceeds in their company. And then the idea is that when you sell your company or go public one day, all the proceeds from the options you've given us are then donated to the charity of your choice. So it's a way of embedding this charitable impact into your business from day one.
0: Excellent. So we're going to come back into how those conversations get started and how this all works. But before we get started, tell me about uh, your history and the history of the foundation, how this came to be. Yeah.
1: So personally, I, I always felt it was important that business gives back and business has a broader role in, in contributing to society. And I've that sort of taken multiple iterations throughout my career. Originally, I thought I wanted to go into international development. So I spent a lot of time in Africa, uh, working with some small social enterprises there, decided that the international development route was not for me. So I went into a more traditional uh, corporate consulting environment after I graduated from business school. So I worked at Deloitte for about about five years helping companies align around their goals and get really clear on what success looked like. And then from there, I shifted. I wanted to have more of an impact focus in my career. So started working in corporate social responsibility consulting, helping companies to measure and benchmark their giving programs, and then landed at the Upside Foundation. So Upside was started about eight years ago by a team of venture capitalists and consultants who wanted to make it easier for Canadian and tech companies to give back. So they looked at a few models around the world and built Upside based off of some of the best practices we've seen in other places, such as the US and Israel. So they started this eight years ago, ran it entirely volunteer-based as they got the legal infrastructure and the accounting infrastructure in place, got the first 50 companies on board, and then hired me to run the organization four and a half years ago.
0: All right. So basically tell us about the model. So in a nutshell, how do you source these deals? Where do these things come from? What does the structure look like? You know, Start to finish a company, how does the company find you? How do you find them and how does this progress?
1: Yeah. So we've, I mean, we've, since we've been around for eight years, we've worked really hard to embed ourselves in the Canadian tech ecosystem. So, you know, we used to go to a ton of events. Uh, I used to go to, you know, four or five events a week, whether it be sort of events at incubators and accelerators or events that VCs were hosting or those sort of broader industry events like a tech TO. So we've met a lot of people that way because of who is on our board and who our founders are. We had a lot of really great connections with the VC community. So we had a lot of uh, great Relationships there from an early stage. So that was sort of early days. It's mostly.
0: Sorry, hold on. I got to stop for a sec. But how many of these VCs are telling people to give away equity?
1: <laughs> That's <laughs> what I'm curious about. That is a great question, Jason. Yeah. So. I think it's a very complex relationship between a VC and a founder that they've invested in, right? So yeah. VCs have already taken a fair share of their equity. So some VCs are more vocal than others, but many have said, you know, we've already taken some of their equity. We can't exactly ask them to give up more. But what the VCs that are supportive do say is, we are happy to support you because often you need, if you're going to issue options, you need board support. The VCs often sit on your board, so they will say to their companies, if this is something that you would like to do, we are very supportive of it. We will rally the board together to get them to support Mm -hmm. this. So they are very supportive, but they are cautious of the message coming from a VC that you should give away more of your equity.
0: Yeah, it's like, we just bent you over backwards on evaluation to get as much of this as we could possibly get, but now we're telling you that you should also give some away for nothing. <laughs> I just, yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting, interesting dichotomy there. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, in general, it seems pretty straightforward, right? I mean, it's you're committing to it early, uh, which is both simultaneously cheap and expensive at the same time, right? I mean, you're giving away shares that are worth maybe very early on next to you know very little or hypothetical value, and then down the road, depending on your degree of success, it could be a very constantly give. So what's the motivation in general? So like let's talk about like the, the founder's motivation that you've spoken yeah. to. Why is it they're interested?
1: So, I mean, if you think, if you look at human beings generally, most people want to make an impact in the world. They want to do something good. They want to feel like they spent their time on earth doing something that helped others and that moved the world forward in some way. Mm -hmm. So we already see a lot of founders, especially today, wanting to have an impact with their company. And there's a lot of ways that companies can have an impact through their customers and the work they do with them, through their employees and the way they treat them, through other sort of charitable giving community focused initiatives. But one of the ways that's very very common is charitable giving through philanthropy. And so usually when you see a company going through a process like this and a founder walking away from this with a vast amount of wealth, usually you'll see them wanting to engage in philanthropy regardless, right? Like if you if yeah. you end up making millions or billions of dollars, you're likely going to end up doing something philanthropic with that anyways. So what our model is doing is saying if you're already planning to do that. Why not, instead of waiting until the day you have that wealth, to commit to it today? Because we believe there's actually a lot of value in committing to something like this up front, because then it's not about saying, oh, it's so nice that that founder so generously gave it away. It's about this is the values that this company embodies and that everyone who works there, everyone who buys from them knows that they are supporting a company that is giving back to the community and every bit of value this company has is increasing the value of what is actually going to go back to the community. So it just creates this whole nother level of commitment and values alignment with all of your stakeholders.
0: I mean, and this is a long game, right? Because I mean, the reality is, is that they're not going to see, the foundation is not going to see any money from this until either A, the company gets to a point where they're large enough to actually start spinning out dividends if that's where they're going to go, or more likely, especially the goal of every tech company or every startup is is the exit event right mm-hmm. now. So so that could especially, could, could be a while off. So you're talking the better part of a decade in most cases before yep. you start seeing those. Uh, and I'd say if they're, if they end up going the public route, even longer uh, in most cases. Yeah. So,
1: I mean, we're typically banking on sort of five to 10 years for those that do see a liquidity event. We know that, you know, many will not unfortunately get there, but it, it is definitely a long-term game. We have seen seven companies so far have an exit event and we've raised uh million for charity so far. So we're starting to see those, um, and I will call them liquidity events versus exits because we like to say IPO or or acquisition, but usually it's some very bizarre convoluted (laughs) format in between those. So we are seeing them happening, but it is few and, and far between. And we expect those to sort of ramp up in volume and in frequency and in amount as time goes on and as more and more of our companies get more and more mature. But uh, yes, it certainly is a long-term game that requires a lot of patience.
0: (laughs) Excellent. Yeah, no doubt. So what's a typical deal look like? How much would you say that they're generally giving to the foundation? And you know, is that dependent upon like level of growth? Like, Are you seeing any kind of variables to determine just how much of the company they're giving up?
1: Yeah. So typically, we the guidance we give to companies is to say about 1% of the company. Obviously, that's a lot easier for an early stage company to do than a later stage company to do. But there are examples globally of companies giving away 1% of the company even right before an IPO. Or there's, mm-hmm. there's some interesting models coming out of the States where people will pledge to donate 1% over a 10-year period. So they'll donate point right before the IPO and then pledge Mm -hmm. another 0.1% every year after that IPO. So it's really interesting to see the models people come up with. But part of the reason we have the flexibility to give through stock options or to give through personal proceeds is just to make that decision really easy for people. So we've seen people give stock options when they are just starting out and there's two people at the company. We've seen people give stock options when they've raised $100 million already. So it's very doable, especially for companies that have an employee stock option plan in place. They already have this structure. They've already gotten approval for it. They simply need to convert the definition of an eligible participant to include a charity in addition to you know, employees, advisors, the typical folks you'd see. We also have the option to do personal proceeds. So for those folks that say, you know, one founder on board, the other is not, or, you know, half our board is supportive, the other half is not, then personal proceeds is super simple. It basically just says, I, Jason, will give away 1%, 5%, whatever it is of whatever I walk away from this company with. So you need no mm-hmm. one else's permission. It doesn't go on your cap table. Some people really like it being on the cap table because it means no one else can touch it. Some people would rather be <laughs> personal. So it's it's super flexible to whatever works for you.
0: Excellent. So talk to me about the charitable aspect of this then. So the money's there, let's say the exit event happens, where is this being directed? Like are they have how much determination do they have over what charities benefit?
1: So we really wanted to ensure that this was able to be embedded in Either your personal interests or your company values. So it is up to the company which charity they want to support. Um, other models we've seen globally, you know, they have a dedicated portfolio of, of charities to choose from. We've opted to make it really open for anyone to choose the cause they care about. So we'll see some people walking in already having a very strong connection to a charity, um, often with, you know, either someone who's helped them in their career. So an incubator or accelerator that is a charity, or maybe a health related charity that mm-hmm. is dealing with something that someone in their family or their close friend group has dealt with. So we often see that other people. So Sensible is one of my favorite examples. Um, When they originally pledged, they didn't have a charity in mind. And then as they grew their company, they launched a robust corporate social responsibility program focused on mental health. And as part Mm -hmm. of that, they allocated their upside to CAMH. So upside was like, components of that. They also had volunteer opportunities and employee development opportunities related to mental health. So a full sort of CSR program uh, with their upside allocated to a specific charity there that the employees were rallying around. So you can choose any cause you want. Um, We even see some people setting up their own foundations after this. And I know I've had multiple people reach out saying, you know, we're in the process of setting up our own foundation for after this. And that is fully eligible. As long as it's a registered charity, you can set up your upside through us and then have 100% of those proceeds go to the charity that you've started after mm. you have your liquidity event.
0: Interesting. So and a lot of inherent flexibility as to when it goes, you know, mm. where, where it goes. I mean, the, the triggering event is the, is the big issue, right? Like that's where the money flows in, at which mm-hmm. point there's gotta be a decision around there, right? So <laughs> tell me, so that brings up the next question is, so is this a one-time endowment, like the money, the triggering event happens, the the money comes in. Is this a one-time endowment to those charities or is there some sort of like fund that's being managed on an ongoing basis?
1: So at this point, typically it's, you know, the money comes in and within a few months it it has all been deployed. So it's either going to, as I said, someone's foundation that they've set up or to specific charities. And sometimes people will split between multiple charities. Um, So it's typically going out right away. Should we get to a point where, you know, we're having $10 million a year coming in in donations, then it might make sense for us to manage those funds and deploy them on, a, on an ongoing basis. But at this point, it's typically all the money flows out to the charities as quickly as possible. It's really interesting from a philanthropy perspective, there's a great debate about whether it's better to set up a, an endowment that lasts for a long time or whether it's better mm-hmm. to get the money out quickly. And there's valid arguments on both sides, I think, especially in today's environment, during... Covid, when you know many people in the world are struggling more than they've ever struggled before, there's a valid argument to be made to deploying capital as quickly as possible to try to set people up for success better, rather than saying I'll give you a little bit over the next 30 years. Let's just really make an impact today, hoping that mm-hmm. that makes lets people build a better future over yeah. the next.
0: I mean, I can see that, but I also think that there's also sometimes it's just clouding it, right? So for example, there are a number of charities that have sizable endowments already, right? So mm-hmm. if you cut that one check, it's just going in their pile to be paid out over 10 years, right? So right. I think it just comes down to not just only personal preference, but who is it you want to support? And is that something that could change over time, right? Like we've had donor advised fund companies on before. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, if your priorities change over time, or the yeah. charity changes its mission over time, because that happens, right? Absolutely. And and you want to, or the charity gets involved in some ridiculous scandal, and you're like, well, that's where my money's been going, having the ability to course correct is a valuable luxury that I think that is afforded through having these endowments pay out small amounts over large amounts. Um, So I I guess it just depends on, it really is such a personal preference as to who it is you want to support, why you want to support them, and what the money's going towards. And I think it's just, there's no wrong answer.
1: Absolutely. And that's, I think donor advised funds are similar to the sort of foundations we were talking about earlier. And that's definitely a great vehicle, as you said, for for flexing and and letting, you know, as the world evolves and as you evolve, being able to change where your funds are going. I think it's really interesting to observe how people think about charities and which charities are worth supporting. So, I mean, the classic metric that people use to talk about a charity's effectiveness is percentage of dollars that goes to administration, Hmm. which is actually Often not a relevant metric, right? There's no. Um,
0: it's it's a real red herring that is really misunderstood. I'll let you go into it. I can go on my rant after. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you may have seen the same the same TED talk that I've seen about from Dan Paletta. Uh, he wrote a book called Uncharitable. He has an amazing TED talk that talks about how broken of a metric that is. So his example was he was running an organization that was doing a um, like a bike a thon type thing, and they would raise say hundred million dollars a year for charity, but they would spend fifty million on this, and they just got slopped. In the press, oh, 50% to administration. This is crazy. So they took all that away. But then, of course, the event lost its ability to advertise. It lost its ability to effectively engage participants. So then the next year, they raised $4 million, but 90% of the money went to the cause. And you're like, So what's
0: better? (laughs) Yeah, cost. I mean, like let's 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 be real. There's a cost of acquisition and administration of these things, right? And I I, the examples I'll use is there's a difference between giving money to a local hospital and a charitable, you know, whatever charitable endeavor you're doing, and the amount of money it takes to raise that versus your defined administration, right? If you're working on like African development work and you have to build a runway for a plane to fly food in. Like, mm-hmm. is that like, what category does that go under? Because that's <laughs> not direct food being given to the people, right? Like, right. so it's just, it's such a broken metric. And so much is, I, I really wonder to whose benefit, who's the people, like what, what, what convoluted view or whose self-serving benefit has this gone towards to basically say, well, oh, you shouldn't give it to them because look how much they waste, but we're, we're running at a 5% efficiency rate. Like a uh, 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 cost rate, like, wait a sec. Did you just burn? Like, I, I, I would love to know the history. I would love to know where yeah. this came from. It's so, it's so misguided. Well,
1: what has been really interesting this summer in particular. So with the Black Lives Matter movement and anti-racism movements that have touched many industries, it has also touched philanthropy and has brought mm-hmm. up some really interesting conversations in this space around who gets funded. There's some stats coming out, and a lot of this is American, uh, but I, I think similar statistics would apply in Canada, that when people think about charity, they usually think about helping the poor, for example, that's a very yeah. common way people think about this. But if you actually look at where charitable dollars go, 90% of charitable dollars are going to help elite institutions. So universities, hospitals that are oh, yeah. not actually helping the poor in oh. any way. And even when you look at, so say you want to support grassroots organizations, most of the money that goes to them is actually given to a more credible larger, more established foundation that has better governance, who then doles yeah. out you know, little bits to these grassroots organizations led by people of color. So philanthropy is having a real reckoning right now looking at how dollars are allocated.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure if you ever saw or heard about Malcolm Gladwell's meltdown on Twitter about the largest endowment ever given to Harvard. And he's like, oh, yeah, great. Congratulations. You made it so that more rich kids can go to a rich kid school. Oh, my God. Like, yeah. let's just murder you. And
1: then Harvard was- then turned around and accepted something like $10 million in government aid during this while well, their endowment yeah. of millions and millions of dollars sits there. Yeah.
0: Under- and then, you know, there was he he actually on one of on his podcast, which, by the way, if people don't listen to that, is utterly fantastic revisionist <laughs> history. There was one where he kind of entrapped the head. I think it was Stanford or something like that and said, like, okay let's just imagine like he's like he basically made the case for how unbelievably well funded they were said, okay let's just imagine someone gives you a billion dollars what would you do then you know do you think you can make good use of that you think it would be better given to like this organization who helps like all these like and and you know what like you give a, a guy's job is to basically spend money <laughs> on his university he's gonna find a way to spend money on his university. You know, so he said, he's like well if i'm spit if i'm spitballing you know this is how i would do it it's just like and he's just like you know you can just picture him face palming himself and the entire thing saying you're missing the goddamn point you have enough and yeah I it's it's I've heard of this problem. I know this problem quite well. I mean I'll profile the Toronto hospitals, for instance, right? Like Princess Margaret owns the lottery world, man. Like owns the, <laughs> the lottery. I I I I got my I've got my ticket too, right? And hey, like those you know, people, houses, Jason. <laughs> hey, hey, you know, and it's just like, oh, it's going to Princess Margaret. And people are like, wait a minute, this isn't a charitable donation. No, it's a lottery, right? You don't get to deduct your lottery tickets, right? Yeah. And then you know, you know, and I've done work with sick kids because besides personal stories I have with that place, like. How do I ever say no to sick children? Yeah, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. but you they know, do
1: amazing work.
0: They do amazing work. And I don't want to discredit that work, but for every, the, the bright, shiny object of, oh, I'm going to give money to them because they're awesome. How many other countless charities, like just struggle, struggle yeah. that, that have, that have, it's like anything else. It's the 80 20 rule, right? 80% of the funding goes to 20% of causes, but that doesn't actually in Canada. Oh, it's worse? In Canada, oh, it's actually over eighty
1: percent of the funding goes to one percent of the charity. Oh
0: my God! <laughs> oh, ah, oh. you know this is where umbrella organizations that dole it out are valuable because they can pool resources on marketing. But oh that's that's, that's okay, deep That's unfortunate. Oh, okay, so let, let's let's get away from the depressing side of charity and get back <laughs> to the good side and what it is you guys do. So I mean, for essentially what you guys are is that you are a platform that markets. Philanthropy to businesses at an early stage of life to help them embed that into their culture and long-term thinking, and essentially your pass-through, right? So if anything, that money is then being flown through. So you're, I'd say, first off, well done. I think it's it's smart. Um, you're you're basically doing something good and. You know, it's not like you're building this giant endowment yourselves that you are managing and making all this money off of. You're you're basically just you're you're a total flow through. So I don't think anyone can ever question your motives on that. So I, I I love that. So talk to me about the exits, the positive experiences that your your partners have had in this. So what's the feedback you're getting from the companies that have participated both before an exit event and after an exit event?
1: So one of the things that makes Upside Foundation really valuable for people to be a part of is the community. So we have a Slack community. We host regular events for our members. During COVID at the beginning, we were hosting weekly events where every entrepreneur was saying, what am I supposed to do right now? No, we don't know what to do. Um, mm-hmm. We were hosting regular events for them to get together and, and connect with each other and learn from experts. So there is a really great community and we've actually seen huge spike in demand for topics around social impact. So we've hosted a number of workshops over the last few months on anti-racism and how our members are building anti-racism concepts into their businesses, both from an HR perspective, as well as a product perspective and a community perspective. So we, we host a lot of those types of things. So a lot of the feedback we get is around how powerful people find it to find this space where they can connect with people who share their values and learn from each other about how they go about building a business that is both very financially successful and aligns with their ethics and, and morals and values. In terms of the exits, we hear from people that they say, you know, this is one of the most meaningful and best parts of selling my business that I felt so mm-hmm. good to know that not only was i benefiting from this and my employees and my investors, but that we were actually giving a very meaningful donation to a charity. And they'll often say, you know, I, If I had just received all this money, I probably wouldn't have written a check of this size at this point in time, but because it was already committed,
0: there was no question about that. Good good on them for being honest. I mean, like, (laughs) and you know what? There's an entire, you know, there's an entire psychology behind this. And a perfect example is something in the, uh, in the finance industry called the, uh, the annuity paradox or annuity puzzle. It's, you know, there's these wonderful products called annuities that ensure you for longevity. And it's puzzling why people don't buy them more. And I'm like, there's absolutely no puzzle whatsoever. It's called the endowment effect. When you have something, it's hard to give it up, right? Mm-hmm. And the bigger that number is, the harder it is to cut that check. Mm-hmm. So the fact that you're forcing the, the, the fact that they're opting to cut a check when that number is super small, and then relatively gets super large in comparison, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm sure many of them have probably said, huh. <laughs> that's that's a lot of money I gave up, but huh, I gave it up a long time ago. So, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> like, there's no going yeah. back.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, part of it is that you get taxed on your capital gains. Whereas when yeah. we hold the asset, then we're not taxed because we're a charity. So, 100% of the proceeds go directly to charity. There's no tax cut out of that. Um, so, then that um, begs
0: an interesting question mm-hmm. How many donations do you get of shares in kind right before the exit?
1: Oh, <sighs> Jason, this is this is a tough question because we um I mean because often sometimes people will offer to give us shares far in advance. It makes things more complicated for us in terms of a CRA perspective, not to get into boring details, but as a charity, you have an obligation to disperse 3.5% of your assets every year. If we're holding, millions and millions of dollars of assets that we hope will continue (laughs) or will be worth more than they currently are, it sets us up to have to distribute funds that we don't actually have liquid Mm -hmm. today. So most of the time we're getting stock options. If it's closer to a liquidity event, it's easier. But I mean, we've seen many times in the world that just (laughs) it's it's not over till it's over.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. No kidding there's been more than one or two IPOs pulled back from the last minute this year and I'm not gonna not even talking about the disaster that was we work and the joke that that was
1: <laughs> which the book is coming out soon.
0: Oh I've already heard the podcast have you heard we we crashed that was fantastic and yeah yeah that's a good one that's from the, wondering the new um, book it's is
1: called billion Dollar loser.
0: I have my own working theories on why that got as ridiculous as it did. And we can talk about that offline. But so I feel like uh, we can have
1: a whole conversation about well, that.
0: Well, it's it's one of those ones that I, it was, it was, I feel like that one was, I was watching a train wreck in real time before mm-hmm. it got to IPO. I'm like, every time a, a funding round happened, I'm like this is going to end so poorly. And sure enough, anyway. So uh, let's, that's a side note. So yeah, we mentioned a couple other interesting podcasts. So overall, great work. I mean, bottom line is you guys are helping a lot of people. A lot of people in the charities, in the charitable space, there were people who need that charitable support by partnering with people who are high growth that basically, you know, a lot of these people get into a lot of, a lot of entrepreneurs, especially in the space are very purpose-driven and helping tap into that at an early stage. Like I said, well done. So before we wrap up, there's three questions I asked everybody that basically uh, gets you, gets you kind of thinking and end on a positive note, other than the WeWork scandal. Um, So the first one is if you had one wish for something you could change in your company or in the industry as a whole, what would it be?
1: So last year at Elevate, I saw uh, Yancey Strickler, who was the CEO of Kickstarter Speak. And I recently read his book called This Could Be Our Future. And his main topic of conversation is about how financial maximization has become the default position for all of our decision-making in society. Mm. And it basically talks about this fact that we've completely over-vectored many things in our government, in our personal lives, and how we run businesses, to focus more on financial value than on the other aspects of value, such as health, such as wellness, such as creating strong livelihoods for people. And I really think that If we're able to include those things in the calculation alongside financial value, we can build an economic system where we're not inherently creating the inequality that we've seen, especially exasperated over over COVID times. So that is the big change that I would like to see in individual companies in the industry and in the world
0: as a whole. I had this conversation on countless occasions of the the <laughs> fact that like all these quote unquote externalities, none of fit in a two by two matrix. So therefore they don't, economics doesn't play well with them. Mm-hmm. Um, but overall, economists have come around and have been coming around for a long time saying, no, these things actually matter. We just. How do you model for pollution in a two by two matrix, right? And uh, I always say the, and I I don't care if you won the Nobel Prize, I still refer to him as, as a crackpot. The uh, the Friedman doctrine. I'm sorry. Yes, thank you. You're you're raging over that. I'm like the entire thing where the only responsibility is is to basically profit uh, within the rules. Assuming first off, you assume the rules are actually sufficient enough to protect against that, and also right. can't be and haven't been by dismantled
1: the, in a very systematic way by corporate lobbies over the last to support
0: years. the profit matrix in the first place, of uh, the profit incentive in the first place. But also, it's like my my simple response has always been: Really, did you did you pull all the shareholders? Did you did did you did you like survey the shareholders? as to say. We could make one percent less if, by the way, we stop dumping stuff in this lake. Did you ask them that? And if so, like, because the last I saw, it's an agency issue, right? You are acting on behalf of shareholders. Shareholders to assume that the only thing reason we care about something, the only thing we care about is profit, is wrong. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm sure there are many people who do, but that's that's not my world. That's not me. It's not every client I speak to. Anyway. Moving forward. So,
1: yes, I would, if yeah. I can comment on a few more <laughs> yeah, things. Here. So, first of all, like there, there are models for these things, right? If you look at insurance companies, insurance companies definitely value climate change. So like there oh, yeah, are well, people fair enough. who, from a financial perspective, value these externalities. So that definitely exists. And second of all, I think if you're interested in this topic, you would love Yancey's book because he does a fascinating job of walking through from the date 1972 when Milton Friedman published his I think one of the most damaging philosophies that has ever been published in the world to today and how that was slowly indoctrinated through the business schools, through-
0: Oh, we'll come back to that. (laughs) I'll get into Ayn Rand and and Greenspan later. Um, But yeah, no, I mean, what what a big surprise. You tell people to be selfish and a bunch of selfish people can act selfishly. Let's move forward. So second point, what has been the biggest challenge getting the organization to where it is today?
1: Oh. I think so. I mean, one of the ones that we're looking at right now, which I think reflects a big question we've been debating over the last few years is what is the core brand promise that underpins the Upside Foundation? So Mm -hmm. is it that we make it easy to give back, that's obviously what we do, but or is it that we have a community of values-aligned founders and giving back through us is just the price of entry to that community? Or is it that we help you feel really good about the type of business you're building? And each of those, should we pursue them um, solely, would would have very different implications for the type of activities we do and the way we engage with our members. So I think that's one of the core questions that we're asking is, what do we want the core value we provide it to be to our members?
0: Well, I would also say you don't have to overly focus on just one. <laughs> so mm-hmm. there's there's a list. Okay.
1: I mean, when I, you have two employees, sometimes you have to focus a little
0: bit more. Yeah, but they're just bullets on a website, right? Anyway, <laughs> let's move on. So uh, last question for you is what excites you the most about what it is you're working on and gets you out of bed every morning to keep on fighting a good fight? And I think in your case, it's probably very.
1: I mean, I think it's really about, I mean, sorry, I'll go back to COVID again. We've never seen so much inequality in the world. You know, they talk about like the billions of dollars in wealth transfer that's happened over the last few months from the poor to the wealthy based on the structures we have. And so- to me the upside foundation is one of the ways that we help ensure that those who win through the current economic system are able to share those gains with a broader subset of the population so many of our members are passionate about equaling the playing field and making sure that everybody has their basic needs taken care of so that they all have the opportunity to rise and that is what excites me about this is the opportunity to share those gains in a way that actually uplifts the whole country along with us
0: excellent and Anyway, I want to thank you on two fronts. One, for taking the time to actually speak to me about this. I very much appreciate it. And secondly, for just doing this in general. This is a fantastic cause.
1: Thank you so much, Jason. It's it's a pleasure to get to work with so many founders who have such great values and want to build such great businesses. And we hope we can help them be successful and make a huge impact for Canada.
0: Fantastic. Thank you. Take care.
1: Take care, Jason.
0: So that was my interview with Jennifer Coldry of the Upside Foundation. I hope you enjoyed that. And if you are a early stage tech company in Canada or whatever stage tech company you are in Canada, I sincerely hope you take the time to take a look at what it is they do and potentially help give back to the community at large. And with that, as always, I'm your host, Jason Pereira. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever is it, your podcast. Until next time, Take care.